When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Troyoso, and welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 26, Cymreg, the Survivor. It's been a while since we have talked in depth about the changes that were happening in Wales and to Welsh as we entered the Victorian period. Welsh had survived initially through the population of Welsh speakers largely living rural lifestyles away from the English-language towns that had popped up in the Edwardian conquest and its aftermath. This remains the case in most of Wales, even to this day to some degree. Only the more English-settled lands in the south and the border region towns large enough to have the larger populations that were a mix of both Welsh and English remain where the English language is the majority at this point. The survival and codification of a written language, thanks to the move away from Rome in the churches, and the education system founded by the Puritans, which then spread in the 18th century, helped literacy grow in Welsh exponentially. The Welsh population from somewhere around 200 years had fluctuated between 400 and 500,000 people. Most were, in some ways, involved in the agricultural system, which was still the main economic engine for the people going into the 19th century. In the first census carried out in 1801, the population was 587,000. Fifty years later, there were 1.1 million people. Employment had changed drastically by 1851. Over two-thirds of the population were now working in non-agricultural jobs. It must also at this point be acknowledged that this also means children, as labor laws for children, were loose at best and non-existent at worst. In the northeast areas, many would be involved in copper, iron smelting, and steel production, as well as brick making and chemical production. This would be true even of my own relatives, who, in a period not long after this, would be involved in manganese mining in the hills around Ru in the Llin Peninsula. From the 1770s to the middle of the 19th century, coal mining had exploded, and with it, towns that had been largely blips on the map suddenly became major centers. Swansea, Cardiff, and Merthyr blossomed as coal extraction and shipping centered in Wales for the burgeoning British Empire. We talk in much further depth about this development and how the influx of people in the southeast would change not just the complexion of the area, but eventually the culture and linguistic makeup. We've mentioned this briefly in the past, but this will become a much more a more explored discussion as we go further. This influx of inward migration begins at first with the English population who move into the area in 
large numbers. About 100,000 people move in, into Wales from England at this time. About 20,000 Irish continue the tradition of centuries of Irish migration, which had been happening in Wales since before recorded history. A migration that might have begun as early as the Ice Age and continues to happen over various generations and even to some degree down to today. Even still, it was the migration off of the farms by the Welsh population which drove the industrial expansion and with them came the Welsh language, poetry, and music. Some of the populations of Newport were Welsh speakers. About half of them were found in Cardiff, something that would be stunning in today's demographics. In 1801, it was estimated that there were 470,000 Welsh speakers in Wales. Cymru was the primary language for around 800,000 people in 1851. Yet, as the total numbers of Welsh speakers doubled, the percentage of people in Wales who actually were Welsh-speaking fell. In 1801, 80% spoke Welsh. This then fell by 67% by 1851. Anglicanization would arrive in the southeast by the mid-century and continue unabated into the current one. Glynevin, which was 35% English-only speakers, and Pontypool was 44%. Those numbers were slowly seeding the end of the Welsh language and the dominance in which English would ascend would come out of these consequences. Because the industry was largely in areas near England, the West and Northwest were still largely strongly Welsh-speaking, as would remain the case even today to a degree. Yet it is unfair to say that Welsh was beaten out of the Southeast or Northeast in this period. Even as late as the 1890s, there were Welsh-language speakers east of Newport. Grave markers were still written in Welsh in places like Marshfield. Pockets of Welsh were still existing all around these areas, and in some cases thriving, even as the rest of the country around them changed. People from the north would work in the dockyards, mines, and factories, and would bring with them their language. Religious groups entering Wales in this period would often write tracts in Welsh as much as they ever did in English, because, of course, when you're trying to reach a population, you want to write in a language that they're actually using. As an example of this, Dan Jones was born in Halkin, Flintshire, and moved to America in 1840 when he would eventually convert to Mormonism. In 1846, he returned to South Wales to preach his new faith, and in reaching the Welsh population, he wrote his pamphlets in Welsh. He was massively successful in part because of this ability to speak to the people in a language they understood, and by being himself a, in quotes, local, this then led to him converting nearly 5,000 people in this period. As a part of his time in Wales, he would lead the translation of a book known as the Book of Mormon, a Mormon religious book seen as a supplement to the Bible, which was translated into Welsh, which became the first foreign language version of the book. Many of his members joined him moving from Wales to America, which would be a bit of a theme for the next 20 to 30 years. So Welsh remained an important medium if you want to actually communicate and live in the country. As English began to dominate small portions of Wales, there was a revivalist movement to keep Welsh vibrant in the face of this pressure. 
Keep in mind that English had dominated Scotland and Ireland by this time. The Celtic languages there had, if not ceased to exist, certainly were very small by comparison. And it's only in recent years where they've had a bit of a revival of these languages that we've seen more adoption of their use and more common expressions being said and written and talked about in those languages in part in the case, of course, of the Republic of Ireland, because they completely moved away from Britain and didn't have to live with English as the main language if they didn't want to. In Scotland, they've slowly made similar decisions, but they've come more from the population rather than also from the officials. These kind of things will continue to develop over the years, but in Wales, there's still a large minority, or in this case at this time, a large majority who are still speaking Welsh as their primary language and will continue to do so throughout their lives. This doesn't change until much later, and there are reasons we'll go through as we go through this episode, at least to some degree, and we'll get into further details as we move along in our podcast. One way to continue to drive a language forward is the adoption of new words and finding a place for them in a language in which word usage changes. This is a common feature of most languages. Sometimes it means wholly adopting that word into the language without change, and sometimes adopting it in a way that reminiscent of the original pronunciation, but translated into a way that makes sense for that language. With this in mind, John Walters took on some of this through his English-Welsh Dictionary which was published in 1770 and then a new edition in 1794, which contained newer words that would not have been used by the old language of the late medieval period. This was something that was common in the 1700s as languages began to change and spelling and pronunciation were codified and definitions formalized. It's part of the reason why, for example, English in North America sounds different than English in Australia, New Zealand, and Britain is down to this codification of change happening after the migration of most of the, the initial English-speaking population to these areas. Keep in mind that, of course, the foundations of North America were built in the 1600s in English. And so as things started to change, they didn't change with the times, if you want to call it that, and thus kept some of their vernacular pronunciations and spellings and the basic way that you would pronounce certain letters. This would be something if Welsh had spread amongst more regions, you would see happening with Wales. But because it's such a much more compact area and more localized pronunciation and spelling, if anything, Welsh becomes more codified into a singular language where the differences between the north and the south are a lot less than what they would be if you were, say, if there was a Welsh language group in North America and a Welsh language group in South Africa and a Welsh language group in Australia, they possibly could be speaking Welsh with different accents, with different pronunciations of different words, with different uh, stresses on those words. All of these things could change over time. And in a way, because of the smaller population, there was a much larger attempt to create something that standardized all of that. And this would become even more so with someone like William Owen Pugh, 
who would create a number of new words and phrases that would then be added to the Welsh lexicon. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hello, we have this superb podcast called We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by Billy Joel. It is the most original, fascinating, and random way to learn the story of the 20th century. Oh, pretty darned random. And we are joined by some pretty incredible guests. I only wrote stuff that I wanted to hear. If it turned out to be a hit, it was pure dumb luck. With me, Katie Puckrick. And me, Tom Fordyce. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Pew had compiled two grammar books of Welsh, seeking to eliminate his perceptions of the inconsistencies in Welsh and offer what could be considered the view of a consistent form of grammar. This is kind of what we've just been talking about previous. This resulted in a period of separation from the vernacular to the written. This formal writing had the effect of creating a, a way you write and the way you talk. And in part, we see this in like the English language, the more formal way of pronouncing things, the more formal way of writing things down are relatively different. You don't speak the way you write. In Welsh, that became much more formalized, and that was considered to be part of a problem in the way the Welsh language was dealt with in this period. And because of this, it led to ridicule by people who were looking at this grammar construction later, and especially in the early 20th century, there was a lot of blowback against Pew's version of this grammar. It's important to understand, though, that this was and is not always the case now. There is a lot more acceptance of some of his ideas, if not necessarily a complete acceptance of everything he did or said or decided to do with the language. And in some ways, like I said, there was a change in how the language was used later on. I am certainly no expert in this discussion, but I have appealed to experts to kind of figure out better explanations for why this was the way it was. 
But again, keep in mind, you can't just create a language out of whole cloth and you have to start with making changes and editing and adding as you can as things change. A lot of the ways Kamrag or Welsh is spoken and written now owes a great deal to how much effort was put in to make the language continue to have relevance in the modern world. Imagine if Welsh had continued to be unable to adapt terms like steam engine, battleship, computer, internet, and the automobile. As funny as it may seem to some, that adaption around these words is key to keeping a language current. Of course, to some of us looking at the spelling for bus in Welsh, which is B-W-S, we might say that's somewhat ridiculous, but if you think about it in the way Welsh is pronouncing things, with the W being an oo sound typically, boos makes sense. You would write it that way, and you wouldn't necessarily come up with some strange way of spelling it just to make it fit. Welsh is a very natural language. It's usually built around the idea that you pronounce all the letters. There are some differences in that, of course, but for the most part, it's not as frenetically chaotic as English is. And so if you have a word which makes sense in one language, you don't necessarily go to the bother of changing everything about it to make it fit into Welsh. You might use an equivalence to make it work, but you're not going to go whole cloth into changes just to make a word sound more, in quotes, Welsh. If the only choice to describe something is to use a word from another language, you can start to create a complete migration from the old to the new state. Think of the way English has adopted and adapted old German words and roots to a language that can easily adapt salsa, manga, Mississippi, and madras, or any number of loan words from French, Old Norse, and others without really missing a beat, even if in some cases, when we look at them in reality and in practicality, they make little sense. Welsh has had to do the same to survive. In a world where English is dominated, something many cultures and languages have to deal with is how to adapt to the English language. In Quebec, for example, English has become so endemic that nationalists sought to ban the use of it on official documents, storefronts, and schools for anyone who immigrated to the province from outside of an English-speaking country. They were, I don't want to say forced, but it was demanded that they take French as their primary language. Welsh language and cultural revivals in London during the late 18th century and early 19th century gave us one of the longest-lasting expressions of culture that we have today, and because of this, without the official support and the governmental standing that, say, a modern Quebec country has to protect its language, the Welsh intelligentsia and the Welsh population protected the language from being obliterated by English. Easily, Welsh could have been destroyed by the overwhelming pressure of English. Lots of languages throughout the world have ceased to exist simply because the pressure of another was so great that there was no way to keep the language pure or whole, and people would either start using both languages interchangeably or slowly one would pitter out. You can actually see to a degree this happening when we look at things like um, what possibly may have happened with French 
with uh, even Brythonic, the old Welsh language. The reality of it is the influence of Rome and Latin created a language which had some of the old characteristics, but as the language continued to unfold, it did not keep them in the same way. That's the reason why things changed so dramatically. So with all of this in mind, one of the best accomplishments of this period was the protection of the language. It was key to how the culture continued to advance and continue to see itself as different. And of course, it is in the troublesome person of Yolo Morganui, who is both a historical forger and mythmaker, that we do actually get some of the cultural establishment that is so key to Welsh history and culture through the first Eisteddfod. We discussed in depth a few episodes ago about the issues of Iolo's problematic forgeries and his established myths of the 18th century, such as the so-called bardic traditions he fully made up. Yet, of course, he was key to the establishment of the Eisteddfod. And without him, it doesn't necessarily happen. In the late 18th century, the Gwynethidian Society, the Association of London Welshmen, which was both more populist and radical than the Cymeridion, became involved in organizing the Eisteddfod, which was then invested with the Bardic Celtic mythology invented by Iolo. Yet, they were now more formal occasions rather than the slightly bizarre meetings held earlier in the 18th century. Competitions were announced in advance, programs were printed, and judgments about the best cultural contributions were then published and medals were awarded to the successful competitors. This was taking on the more modern concept of how this would work. The meeting at Corwin in 1789 is considered to be the first modern version of this. As the French Revolution turned into a British issue, the celebrations were halted, but they were revived after 1815 and then again in 1819 at Camarthen. Yolo Morganui, of course, succeeded in linking the Aestafad with the Gorseth, his Arctic Congress, which survives in the modern version of the celebration. This would then grow into the, the first of local celebrations across Wales and a larger, more national event, depending on the size, funding source, and location, would dictate just how much Welsh was featured at this point, as bigger donors were found, typically amongst the aristocracy. The aristocracy in Wales, largely speaking English, meant that one of the problems with this early founding was that English would at times become the major language used. An irony today, as there is some reintroduction of English into this cultural event now. One of the side effects of all this literary and cultural effort is that it acted as a place for Welsh literature to be created for the mass market, as well as Welsh writers in both English and Welsh created books that celebrated Welsh history and culture. An English translation of the Magvanogian by Charlotte Guest became directly from this experience of meeting with so many literary people in 
a place like this. Welsh printers began in this era to grow out from London, and with it journals and newspapers in Welsh began to grow in popularity. Deriving this, of course, was the new age of mass media, which was covering the world that was providing news to the local Welsh population in their language and was no longer dependent on the, the rich patrons in order for them to finance their existence. Literacy had allowed the poor to have a voice and a shilling to fund that voice. The Welsh press was written by and for members of the lower, middle, and working classes, which was becoming the case across Europe and North America. By this point, there were few wealthy Welsh-speaking families. Thus, there wasn't really a demand from those families for a Welsh-language news magazine or paper. English was the language of power and ambition, especially in this era of colonialism, was surrounded by fitting in with the larger English population. So few wealthy or noble families would have saw the need for a Welsh language education. To quote Professor Janet Davies, Although Wales was the product of native industrialists, most of the pioneers of the industrialization were incomers. As the poet Walter Davies put it in 1815, the Welsh have the labor, the strangers have the profit, end quote. All of this expansion of the Welsh language and the formalization of the written language came with one side effect, the attention of the government in London, who were less excited about the rise of this Welsh nationalism and culture, the worries that this would create a separatist movement similar to what was going on in other parts of Britain. There would be crossroads coming for the Welsh that would begin with the 1847 report on the education in Wales, which was be the first system-wide government mission to remove Welsh as a language of the majority. We will, of course, touch on this in much further depth during the next few episodes of this podcast as we talk about education as a whole and this development of the Blue Books that would create such opposition and such blowback amongst the Welsh population in years to come and would hold a position of abhorrence by the majority of Welsh-speaking Wales in the late 20th century. This would, of course, initially be developed through church schools, but it would soon enough become the project of a state that was continuing to try and build a British identity that so much of the goals of the 19th century English governments were built on. Their eventual failure, of course, would lead to violence and rebellion in Ireland, years of angry agony and distress in the loss of Celtic languages, which even today create a great deal of animosity amongst all of the so-called Celtic fringe. Yet, even as Westminster plans sought to end the Welsh language in practical use, it would also lead to a long-term decline amongst populations that would normally be the source of Welsh dominance as the Herculean efforts to keep it alive began to grow in face of what was looking at an extinction-level event for the language. But that's a discussion for an episode much further down the road. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you for your contributions throughout the years that we've been doing this podcast. I hope 
as this podcast is being recorded just before the Christmas season, that you have the happiest of holidays. And we will see you again in 2024. Thank you, everyone. Take care. Have a great day. And if you want to offer feedback or comment, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at Welsh History Pod, on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. Or if you would like to help contribute to the podcast, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Welsh History. Any donations at any level are certainly appreciated and not necessary, of course, to listen to this podcast. Thank you, everyone. Take care. Have yourselves a wonderful coming weeks, and we will see you on the other side. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Welsh History Podcast is a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. To find more information on them, you can do so at evergreenpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts.